The startup game has changed and only the most agile will make it to the other side. I'm your host, Michael Martoji, founder and CEO of SwagUp, and this is Out of the Woods, a show where we interview top startup founders, executives, and investors to hear how they're navigating the rapidly changing economic environment. We'll share real-time insights, strategies, and stories from those in the trenches with the goal to help as many teams level up their execution and make it out of the woods. So with that in mind, let's dive in. good swag right <laughs> yeah yeah i love it i love it cool well ron first off welcome you're the first guest on the out of the woods podcast uh we got the new jersey connection today i feel like we have a lot of kind of similarities in our in our background a little bit you know the very bootstrap nature of the businesses you know ernst and young nj entrepreneurs of the year um you know both from new jersey super excited to have you on as the first guest Absolutely, Michael. It's an honor to, first of all, be your first guest, but also to be able to speak with you. I mean, what you've built um, as a local is kind of an honor to see, and and it's always something to admire. But then also, like you said, there's so many paths that I feel like I could follow of yours. So excited to chat, excited to talk about our journey. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, on on both sides, and I like the uh, I like how the headphones match the the hoodie. You know, you, you got the, <laughs> the drip the drip going. <laughs> I know you can appreciate that. Thank you. Yep. Well, you know, I won't go too much into like you know just the obvious story and and the background and stuff because you know there's a lot of podcasts that people can get there. But you know, just for the unanointed, kind of what's the three to four minute story on you know you your background the company? Obviously, you've been in this space you know around the space for a while, so. You know, it's kind of all led to this moment, maybe. But what's what's kind of the background? Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, to get really into it, I right out of college, I was at Deloitte. Um, I was at, I was at Deloitte, accounting major. Supposed to go the Deloitte consulting route, and I uh, got the opportunity to work as a controller for a startup called Shreds, based in New Jersey. Uh, back then, was one of the fastest growing supplement brands in 2012. Uh, got to work there and really get the the. Uh, besides controlling the cash flow, got to really understand marketing and, and what it means. And I really got fascinated with it. Um, and then from there, um, got the opportunity to start my own marketing agency called Ghost 3 Media with two other partners who are my best friends now. Um, and uh, what we did was we focused on taking what we learned from Shreds and saying, hey, could we help other health and wellness brands skip the mistakes that Shreds made? Um, because we had a, you know, inside look into it, uh, did that for about five years, scaled it to about seven figures. And, uh, from there, our goal was one day we're going to do what we did at shreds before ourselves. Um, and, uh, starting our own supplement brand was always part of the goal, but our thing was, we're going to learn as much as we could. Um, so when 2019 rolled around, we felt it was the right time to jump into building our own brand. We had about eight years of experience in the industry through either agency work or employee work. And uh, that's what Avi really is. It's, it's a curation of what not to do when building a brand and uh, building it off that framework. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's what we're excited to do. How was the how was the shreds journey? I mean, I, I was fully aware of shreds back in the day. It was like super, super fast growing. You know, Arvin's like a yeah. crazy charismatic guy, aggressive yeah. guy. What, what was that environment like? Oh, it was it was it gives me chills talking about it to anyone. Um imagine working somewhere where you had to live in the same building. Uh the office was on the penthouse. Uh we all lived in the same building, all employees. Uh there's about twelve to fifteen of us. It's at that Jersey time. City, right? Jersey City at the Beacon Towers, and um, you were required to work two shifts. 
9 to 6 p.m. You go home and shower right downstairs. You can eat dinner quickly. You have to come back by about 9 p.m. And you work till 3 a.m. Your only day off was Saturday. But that, too, you still have to be plugged in. You had to have two phones. One was work. One was personal. Um, and you have literally no idea that there's a life outside of that building and outside of that. But what I will say is it did not feel like a slave ship, even though we slaved there. It felt like, holy shit, I can't wait to get back to work tomorrow. Um, Because you're in literally the nucleus of building this extremely fast-paced business. Um, And when you're at the heart of it, we got paid well. We had a lot of fun. um, But it it was Wolf of Wall Street type stuff for... A supplement brand, which, you know, it's kind of cool. So uh, it's hard to explain, but it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. That's crazy. I mean, it would be hard to see that kind of culture, you know, flourishing in 2022. (laughs) You know, I think out of the question, (laughs) you know, I think that that'd be business insider, New York times all over the place talking about how, but it's crazy because the flip side of that is, you know, I'm sure you look back at that as like one of the fondest memories you've ever had and, you know, formative of your professional career. And it's kind of a shame to a degree because it's, you know, it's kind of lost where it's hard to recreate that again. It's so true. I love what you said is so true is, is like, I, I know I will never ever get to experience that again. But what I'm so grateful of is I'm so grateful that I got to experience that because the people who haven't, it is so hard to teach work ethic. Um, and I, I have some of the smartest people on our team, but teaching work ethic is so different from teaching talent or, or learning something to do something. And that work ethic, it's, it's, you're right. It will probably never be able to be employed that way again. Um, yeah. I think work ethic is one of those things that like, you don't realize the upper limits until you've seen it, you know, like you think you're yeah. a hard worker yeah. until you see somebody that's like really hard worker and it's like yeah. a whole different level, you know, and it becomes inspiring because you want to, you want to kind of keep up with them, you know, and it, it just drives the culture up. So it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. How's, you know, why, why obvious? I mean, you know, in the world of supplements, I feel like there's a new supplement brand every single day. There's millions of different options out there for consumers. Like what, what did you see as the opportunity? Was it all the brand? Was it the product? Was it, you know, how you guys market a combination? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think for us, the biggest piece from what I remember was, and, and, uh, not from what I remember, but I think the biggest piece for us was you look at supplements, And the world of supplementation has always had a stigma attached to it of, oh, well, you take it because you work out, right? And you take it because you want to feel jacked or you take it because you want muscles. And what we saw a shift for from happening is people are going into saying, hey, I don't care about a six pack as much as I care about waking up and feeling good and looking good. And when we saw that shift happening, we kind of wanted to stay in the same world, but live in a different country. And that's what Obvi really is, is it's staying under health and wellness. But what the category really is that we're in is not really sports nutrition. It's in Nutra Cosmetics. It's getting cosmetic benefits through nutrition. And when we saw that there's an evolution towards that category, I think for us, it turned into, oh, we're not just going to create another supplement brand. We're going to change the way people feel good and look good. Um, and we're going to make, uh, we're going to have a really fun time doing it. Yep. And I think like collagen was a big part of the strategy from, from the early days, right? It's like collagen enabled supplements. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that's 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 really what Avi is 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 the flagship ingredient across majority of our product is collagen, and collagen is is the Elmer's glue in your body that holds your hair, skin, and nails together. So when you see uh, some hair loss or some skin getting saggy, and unless you're using Botox, um, you're probably losing collagen, and then most people do starting the age of 30. Um, and collagen has had this unflavored look and feel to it that like you're supposed to take when you're older. But the truth is collagen should be taken when you're younger so you can push off some of the effects yeah, of losing college, preventative measures. Um, and that's what Obvi was catering towards. Gotcha. Cool. Love it. Well, you know, obviously the, the title of the podcast is Out of the Woods. You know, the, the general concept is around, you know, how do we help different teams out there you know, execute at a higher level and navigate all this uncertainty that's going on in, in the markets and, and startup world. Um, so for, you know, in your mind, for those not paying attention, like what's, what's your take on what's going on in the external environment right now? Yeah. Um, I, my take on it is, is I don't think any of us know what's really going on. Um, and I think the, the, I feel that way because we're in this world right now where accessibility of information and evidence of information is so vividly present and accessible that we're able to almost watch things kind of flourish, but also crumble and react appropriately. You know, you, you think back at the time when people always say, oh, this is what happened in 1990, or this is what happened in 1996, or this... A lot of those years that they're relating to, the accessibility and knowledge and, 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 uh, and, and, and showcase of what's happening would almost happen on like a biannual or quarterly basis. Whereas for us, we're able to see information by the minute, right? Uh, if I'm able to see, I know what California's gas prices is right now if I look it up. Right. Um, so I understand impact. So my point of what I think is going on is I don't think any of us really know what's going on. But I do think that the solution is going to be um, it, the solution is going to be found through the fact that we have information accessible at a way higher capacity than we did before. And I'm not as worried as comparing this to, oh, we're going to slip into recession and then a, a really great depression. Um, and I try to stay out of that because I think there's just too much creativity, too much tech, too much data, and too much knowledge out there for this not to be solved. Um, and so that's kind of my take on it, that I think we live in a different world and we're trying to compare it to an older world. And uh, that's creating more fear than anything else. Yeah, I, th I think it, the, it's interesting sometimes the parallels to like 2000, 2001 that a lot of people are making because, you know, interest rates had to rise, tech got crushed. But I think one of the interesting call outs there is that, you know, nobody knew what the internet really was at that time. Nobody knew that, you know, SAS, like SAS wasn't even a thing yet. Like all those things were kind of unproven. So it's, I think there's more parallels between crypto and Web3 to 2000, 2001 than there is just like the broader technology environment and like startup environment. I couldn't you know? agree more. And to, your, and to your point, like, I think things move a lot faster than ever before now. You know, the, the transfer of information and knowledge and, like you said, just visibility of what's going on. Like, people can react a lot quicker. Um, so it's, you know, it's, hard, it's hard to know exactly where we're at, but it's also, you know, every, every moment in time is different in its own way, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then that, what you said right there is, 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 is it's a different time. And I, I just think my biggest thought is, is not using fear 
from previous historical events to drive decision-making and how we live our life today because it's a completely different era. Yeah. Um, and we ha- we're going to write our, our history. Um, we shouldn't be taking history to write our history. Yep. Have you, you know, I don't remember how old you are, but like, have you gone through other economic downturns? Like, where were you in 2008 and 2009 you know, or earlier? Yeah, I'm, thir- I'm 30. Yeah, I'm 30. Um, and so I was, where I was, it's 18. I was in, I just got accepted to college and um, I was on my way to Boston. Um, did you did you feel it at the time in any way? I I felt it for two reasons. One was... I picked a college based on getting a full ride versus the college I wanted to go to because my parents, not that they said to go with the full ride, but it was like, this is a better decision for our family. Um, you know, it was choosing between NYU and Bentley and NYU was my, one of my dream schools and Bentley was a full ride. So I chose Bentley. Um, and then secondly, I remembered that I was, I've been working ever since I was 16. And even when I started in college, I got a job right away because I knew that I can't rely on too many things to like work out for me because there was a lot of stress in the world. And so from day one, I was looking for jobs and internships to kind of build my resume up because I can't be left without a job. I don't, I don't recall more than that. Um, in terms of added pressure or economic outlook. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think the people that, you know, some of the older people that have that ingrained in their minds to your point, it's like, yeah, it's helpful in a way because they have that context, but then it could be hurtful because they lean on it too much as like a parallel potentially. Yeah. So, and then, you know, Twitter is full of these people sharing their thoughts and <laughs> you know, wisdom. It, you know, we got to look to this parallel or it's, oh, it's 1974 all over again or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. <laughs> it is hard to tell. It is hard to tell. How how big of a, you know, when it comes to like how you plan for the business and stuff, how big is like revenue modeling for you and forecasting and, you know, how do you, how do you think about those things? Like, especially as like a, you know, bootstrap company trying to predict the future, I think is, is pretty helpful in terms of like how, yeah. how your costs are structured as well. So like, yeah. how do you think about modeling going into the year and, and have it, has it changed at all? Yeah. Um, I think for us, what modeling is, is it's an imperative exercise that is done literally monthly and even biweekly. Um, but what we don't do is live and die by our model. Um, and so I, I, I think what I mean by that is, is we have a really, really robust cash flow model. Um, and we are updating it literally biweekly with what was the last two weeks CPA? What could that turn into in terms of new customers? What does that mean for cash, et cetera? And model that out and see what our burn rate is. Um, but from there, what we do is, is, is we don't live and die by what this model just told us. It is more of an indication of here's what could happen if things stayed the same. Now, we know we're going to constantly try to improve. So if we improve, we're inherently going to become better. But if we don't, here's kind of the, here's kind of what could happen and the negativity part of it. So I think the model for us is kind of just a, a, a North star, but I think we don't make decisions based on, Oh shit, this is, this is looking really bad on the model. Cause the last two weeks were completely bloodbaths online. Let's change everything we're doing. Um, so modeling for us is, is, is something that we do very extensively with our virtual CFO, 
but um, it's not what we use necessarily for every decision, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you, do you run different versions of the model? I mean, you talked about upside and downside. Do you run like bear cases, bull cases, or just change the inputs yeah. or something? Yeah. Yeah. What we do is uh, pretty much our entire model is built off of um, CPA right now. Uh, Cause that is some of the, one of the biggest variable levers that can be pulled. We don't have that big of a retail presence. So online acquisition and retention are the two biggest things. That is what we're running. Hey, if six, if CPA jumps to 60, uh, we have until August <laughs> uh, with cash. If six, if CPA can stick at 45, we're good. Let's coast, you know, let's, let's scale, let's double up, let's triple up. And so we're constantly tweaking these numbers um, and sometimes it gets a bit addicting because the entire model changes off of you flipping, um, you know, 10 to $15 on a CPA. But um, I think we're aware of also seasonality. We're aware of overall business growth, new launches and stuff like that. So we have a lot of other tactical levers that we like to pull. Um, so, uh, yeah, we do a lot of scenario planning, but I'd more so just to kind of understand the full spectrum. How do you how do you decide when like the things you're seeing from a performance standpoint are now like a trend going forward, or if they're just you know kind of blips in the path and and you'll just get back on track? Do you do you ever change the model going forward because of what you're seeing? Yeah, and I think we did right. Um, you look at what we went through in 2019; it was a gold rush, right? Um, and if we mo- if we lived by that model, and being an accounting finance background, we've been modeling since the day we started the company uh, when we were doing 5,000 revenue a month. Um, we've been modeling and, you know, CPA back then was 18 bucks, 16 bucks. And um, if we had modeled off of that, we probably should have exited already for um, nine figures. But I think one of the things we've done is, is we, on a quarterly basis, find the new map for the model based on how the quarter went. Um, and really look at year over year as well. Now that we have some maturity to the company, not that much, we're only three years old, but we're able to at least look at, Hey, last year, this summer wasn't as rough this year it is. So when we're looking at next summer, we should probably model off of this summer, not take an aggregate of the two summers. And then do you, do you look mostly just, Hey, internally, this is how our business is performing and, and just kind of stay focused on that. Or do you look to external sources for like, you know, common thread collective shares, like these benchmarks and stuff? Do you look at that at all and say, Hey, the market's shifting. I don't think this is the right answer, but I don't look at anything else. Um, I, I almost, I, I, we almost try to remove every macro element except one. The only thing we look to is during, uh, from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day, people do not care about their health. And I can't change that because they, you either made the body you want or you look as bad as you can and you're going to enjoy summer the way you want to. Um, besides that one macro element, we don't look at anything else. Um, we always ask others, hey, how's CPA been for you or how are ads performing? But that's only to gain a benchmark to know if we're doing under or we're doing just as good or just as bad. But we are never um, basing anything off of macro elements and, and using that as kind of something to change on our business. Gotcha. So you're know, you know, looking at kind of the economic environment going forward, but whether it's inflation and consumer spending capabilities and consumer sentiment, 
do you, do you think that impacts the business at all? Or do you kind of say, Hey, we know how to acquire customers. And as long as we can keep doing that and, and retain them and grow them, we don't have to worry too much about th- those risks. I think, um, the, I think the way I would answer that is I think there is definitely impact coming. Uh, I mean, gas is at $6. You know, there is impact from what's happening in the macro world and the economic um, world. What I think we do with that information is, is not that it is going to become impossible or harder to acquire. We have to acquire differently. So, for example, a lot of our narrative has become afterpay or sezzle, break your payments into four. Um, we've, we've switched to our top of funnel products being some of the cheaper ones not so much the more, you know, um, uh, premium ones. We've also made it so that there is an extensive amount of value that they can purchase to post-purchase. Um, there's a lot of, and then rewards program. We've, we've beefed that up to where it's so much, it's so, you're so well rewarded when you shop with us. Um, so we've what we've beefed up on our end is how are we going to fight the the economy is we're going to make it so valuable to shop with us that this is probably the best time to come to come and spend money on collagen. Um, and I think that's the way we look at it. Not so much like, damn, it's going to be tough now. We kind of have to just ride the wave. It, we, we are riding the wave, but I think we're changing the narrative of why to buy and how to buy. I mean, you're trying to get on the offensive and look for opportunities and make you know your product more appealing to the consumer that's changing potentially, and make sure you're still a part of their their daily daily habits. You know, how, how do you think about that then? From like, you know, is subscription a big part of your business? Is repeat a big part of your business? And and how how do, how do those things drive you know the revenue model? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously, I don't live with any regrets, but one thing I do always look back and say, I wish we built a little bit big bigger subscription business. Um, our subscription business is a little bit more unconventional. What ours is, is, and I can't even call it a subscription because it's not officially a subscription, but we launch new products and new flavors every month. And so there is a, theoretically, there is no sense in subscribing to one flavor uh, of our product because we're launching a new one that you're probably going to want to buy next month. And so our retention is very sticky because we give people a reason to come back and buy um, a new flavor or collect. You know, we always have this concept of collect all the flavors. We're at 22 flavors now in three years. Um, and many of our customers have all 22. Um, and it's become this thing of, I don't even know if I'm going to like this flavor, but I need to buy it because Avi's releasing it. So our subscription model is you're going to be subscribed to the idea that you have to come and get all our flavors but on a um, technical subscription basis, our subscription business is, is 5%. Gotcha. So almost the customers naturally, you know, subscribe by just like their need to get the next greatest product. I, tell you, I saw you did like an Entenmann's launch or something. Like everyone's just yeah. kind of always looking to you like, what's next? What's next? And they're, they're kind of yes. ready to buy. Yes. Which is good to, to a degree too, because, you know, subscriptions are great, but you also typically have to give them some sort of carrot for, you know, it's like discounts or some sort of you know, rate you know, off that, that, and, and I think what often doesn't get talked about in subscriptions is how high their churn rate is not because you're not doing your job as a company, but because the product is downright boring after four months. Um, and, and because there is no barrier to entry in creating businesses today, there's just something new coming every single day. I mean, look at the, look at the ready to drink category, right? 
Um, I don't even know how many businesses while we started this podcast have started in the ready to drink beverage space. Uh, probably a handful, you know, already. So it's so hard to keep people sticky because there's new stuff, new exciting things, you know. And so a subscription is almost like having a relationship that has an ongoing hall pass, right? And if you keep that hall pass there, um, at some point, people are just going to cash in on it and you're going to see a churn. So, yeah, I, I think that's the way we're looking at it and, and combating against it is new launches. I think with, with subscriptions too, it's like, you know, you got to get, you help them build the habit to use the product or else sometimes it starts to just pile up and you just have a bunch yeah. of the product. I think I did a subscription once, um, from another company and I just, you know, I wasn't using it enough and it was constantly <laughs> coming in and you just start to have so much of it, you know, it's it kind so of def- you know, change your relationship with the company a little bit, I think. It's so yeah. true. Um, uh, your best, best subscriptions are, are things like Netflix, right? Um, which you're actively know it's part of your lifestyle. Um, and, and it's something you're going to use. Um, and so, yeah, but, but also with Netflix, they're part they're, through their subscription, they're pumping out new content for you to consume. So you don't go somewhere else to get it. Um, yeah. and I think that's the, that's, what's broken in the subscription model is relying on the fact that someone will never get bored of the same thing every single day. Well, I think that's the issue with Netflix right now. I mean, their stock is getting hammered, but they've kind of created this like, you know, kind of hamster wheel where they have to constantly put out content to feel like people are getting value out of it. And that's expensive and it's hard to kind of always stay creative and you know, top of mind. So anyway, so, you know, I'm also interested on just like on the cost side of things, you know, both margin cash flow. Obviously, it's great to acquire customers cheaply. It's great to get them to retain and buy more products. But you know, how, how are you guys thinking about the, the cash flow side, the gross margin side? Obviously, that's a big you know, f- factor that drives you know, growth in the business because you're reinvesting the cash into it. So yeah. how, how's that side managed? 100%. Um, I think that's the part that's been our biggest struggle right? Um, being bootstrapped is when you get hit with, Hey, collagen prices are going up about 8%. Um, that's half my margin. Um, you know, um, or when you get hit with, um, a vitamin shop order, that's $300,000 and they're going to pay you net 60. Um, (laughs) that's, that's my cash for the next order to replenish what you're taking from me, you know? Um, and those things, when those things come about is where you start looking at, the million dollars that looked really frothy in your bank account and you say, shoot, that could be wiped out next month. Um, and so what I think we've focused on and, and, and I think it's constantly a challenge. We have not figured it out, but what I've, what I've almost created a mantra for is like, if I see anything that comes through, um, in terms of a payment that is above $25,000, I'm going to figure out how I can't, I don't need to pay that now. And um, basically taking any model of afterpay or sezzle and finding the right tools for it on the business end um, for a business owner. And so that's where tools like, you know, we use Parker very extensively. The Parker card has been great. Um, uh, We're using upside financing really, really well, um, which is more so inventory financing. Um, but you buy your different tranches of days that you need. Um, and so the way we're looking at it is, is anything that comes into the door in terms of receiving payment, they are not getting an ACH from us. Uh, we're going to figure out how to finance it. And I rather lose margin through financing right now than lose cash flow and have to go for extensive financing uh, down the line. Uh, which I think we'll still have to do. There, there's a point which I think many brands get to 
I mean, some don't, um, you know, credit to, 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 to many of the, many of you guys, but I think we will in, in, in the category that we are, that we'll have to raise capital, you know, um, to get to the next, uh, Cavalier in terms of retail. But right now, the way we're looking at it is, is if something is coming through the door, cash is so, um, cash is such king right now that we are not giving up a single dollar right now. I rather pay a financing company before I pay the vendor. Um, so everything is almost financed between one to 5% for us, um, to buy me 30 to 120 days, um, different tools. And uh, Parker card is great because it's net 60 for no interest. And it's a true net 60. It's not the nonsense net 60 that Amex Plum <laughs> gives you. Um, it's net 60 from every single charge. So tools like that have given us the power to say, all right, we're going to almost build our business 60 days at a time instead of build it now, pay now. Yep. Yeah, I think you know, there's there's sometimes there's you know this finance professionals in the companies they see like these short term financing vehicles It's like oh they have huge APRs because you're paying two percent for a month and it's like I get it but if you're only floating that cost for a month or two the cash is so valuable like you know it is yes. what it is you know there's a lot of benefit to not having that cash go out especially in a startup they could turn that cash into inventory or new customers whatever it might be so you have to really yeah. change your lens on like what your opportunity cost of that capital is. You nailed it. It's it's changing the perspective, and I, I've, I'm constantly also getting into it with people on like using getting using a credit card that gives you points, right? And it's the stigma of oh, well, I get I don't have to pay for flights, I don't have to pay for hotels. Um, yeah, but what if I told you you don't have to worry about cash flow? Isn't that way bigger than the free first class flight you booked? to, you know, um, to Europe like that for me, I think it's just what we've been trained to think, um, and how, again, some of these finance folks look at even the APR model. Um, it's, it's a different time and it's kind of tie this back to even the, you know, what we talked about earlier in this is we were, we're writing the way we're going to build businesses today. We can't go based on the way conventional banks loaned at 3% APR before and, and use that as our, as our benchmark, you know? So, yeah. Yep, no, hundred um, percent. What about on the gross margin side? Like, was has that been a focus for you up to this point, or is it more recently it's become something that you got to focus on because of inflation, or is that something like, hey, we'll get there, you know, later on? We're focused on growth right now. Yeah, um, no, gross margin has has started to become a little bit of a concern, uh, partly because freight went up, right? So your shipping and handling is up. Uh, my my three PL is 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 world-class they're amazing but they have to pass through costs that they go up on um you know and so our 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 shipping and handling freight is up and then product wise our cost of goods went up um and so when you look at those multiple things um and then on top of all of that i'm financing a lot of things right um to make sure i have good cash flow um so i have to bake that into although it's not in the gm model i still have to look at that on the gm level um it is something I've had to start looking at because of the kind of economic down the downside of, of, of things. Um, what I don't get too involved in, though, is trying to find alternate solutions. Because right now, my time is still more valuable in figuring out how to scale and grow past this than figuring out how I can save three to four points because it went up, my GM went down three to four points. Um, and I think it's where we utilize, you know, I saw, I've seen a lot of people say, man, my prices went up, 
I'm looking for new manufacturers and good. You should always be actually looking for new manufacturers, not, not just one time when things go wrong, but shifting your entire focus so that you can, you know, make your margin work may work, but look at all the things you're putting at risk, right? Quality of product, uh, quality assurance, um, making sure that your product's going to be the same from, from manufacturer to manufacturer. Um, those things, there's so much more backend things that we don't remember. So I've, I've, we look at it, it's important, but we're not, um, we're still more focused on the acquisition end. Yep. Makes sense. What, you know, when it, when you look at like other businesses or maybe you have friends that have startups or businesses, like what, what do you typically see as like the, the waste in some of these companies and, and how have you guys kind of trimmed the unnecessary expenses to be able to keep scaling with, you know, self-funding? Yeah. Um, I think the waste is trying to, I, I think the waste is where people are not hiring the right agencies or services, um, where experts have spent years perfecting. So for example, you know, I know, I know there's some companies who manage their own 3PL in our industry and they're, they've talked about how it's been so hard during this COVID time. They can't get people. They can't get packages out on time. Packages are getting shipped late. There's errors because they're hiring temp workers. And my thing to them is, is why are you not using a 3PL? Because you're saving 6%. Uh, but look at all of the back-end quality that you're losing out in the customer experience, right? Uh, so wastage in trying to hire and keep things in-house that they're true experts for. Another thing, Amazon. Um, we, for the last three years, used the same Amazon agency, full service. They buy from us almost at a little bit over wholesale, right? And they manage the entire process. They pick up the product from us. They send it to Amazon. They use our brand registry. They are experts at Amazon. I lose about 6 to 7% by not going direct, right? Uh, if I went direct, I would have made an extra 6% margin on Amazon. But I don't. But now I don't have any overhead to manage Amazon on my team. I don't have to worry about it. I get cash up front. So I, I think we, people are hiring and I don't have no problem. I have no problem with hiring a team. I think it's great. But I think people are hiring at such a perspective of, oh, well, I want this in-house. I want this in-house when we can actually source those things out correctly um, because there's true experts out there. And then lastly, I think the other place people are, are there's just too much fat right now is focusing on too many vanity things um, versus not focusing on knowing your numbers. Um, there's so many founders I talk to and I'll ask them simple questions like, what's your LTV? What's your, what's your, what's your cost per acquisition cost? Uh, what's your AOV? What's this? What's your CVR? And these are D2C owners and they're like, they have to go and pull up their app. If you don't know those five or six key metrics off the top of your head, you're not plugged in. Um, you're plugged into the wrong things. So... Yeah, I think the uh, I think the vertical integration or in housing of things is an interesting conversation because it's it's all about like is this a real differentiator for you or your core business or something? If you're if you're running a supplements brand, is the three PL really going to differentiate you or help you build a better business? Probably not. You know, whereas exactly. you know if you know you're probably really focused on product development, customer acquisition, customer engagement, you know, subscription programs, some of the technology, you know, marketing, all that kind of stuff. And this just becomes a distraction. Now there could be a scale where it makes sense, you know, later on in the future. But I right. think to your point, some people get a little romantic about controlling, 
every piece of the puzzle so early on because they, you know, they, it makes sense on like paper, you know, like gross margins or, or net margins seem to make sense. But the, the opportunity cost of your attention, I think is definitely something to think about. And, I, and if, again, if it's not like something that's core to your business, it's probably not worth the time to develop that expertise either. Yeah. You know? Really well, really well said. I think that's the biggest piece is, is you managing this, what, it, what are you selling to, to your end goal? Um, do they really care that it's in house or is it actually a bigger headache for them? Um, versus, you know, someone like you it's with swag up, it, it, it was core, you know, it is, it is something that's truly the handling of the experience, um, that your, to your clientele. So yep. it makes sense. And even, and even us, we think of like, should we be doing that? You know, we, we even think to ourselves, should we be running a, our own fulfillment center? And, you know, we have grand ambitions that extend beyond what swag up is today. So ultimately sure. I still think it is, but you know, it's definitely a, a decision that you have to make. Uh, like, you know, do we want to do this ourselves or do we work with the people that do this all day long and optimize yeah. all, all day long? What have been, you know, I don't know if you guys have had to face this at all, but has there been any like really tough decisions that you guys have had to made over the last you know, six to 12 months with kind of the changing environment, whether it's, you know, personnel related or strategy related that, you know, was just like really hard to make. Yeah. Um, I think the, 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 the biggest decisions, uh, that the, the, some of the hardest ones were saying no to getting product in more retail stores. Um, and you know, we had the option to explore target Walmart extensively Sam's club, um, and we said, no, we walked away, um, because it probably would have been way worse for our business than it would have been beneficial from a cash flow standpoint. Yeah. Cash flow, uh, infrastructure. We're not, we don't have the infrastructure yet, you know? Um, and you know, they say half the battle is getting in, but half the battle is staying in. Um, we weren't ready for the other half. Um, and being in the, 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 the type of economic place we are and with so many uncertainties, I can't take something that I'm uncertain about and throw into a world of uncertainties. So that's been very tough to be able to, 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 to say no to, to the fact that I could have had the vanity to say I'm in target. Um, that's tough. And then I think lastly on the product development end, Last year, when we won brand of the year for our industry, um, we had done 26 product launches. Um, this year, we had to decide to probably only going to do about 12 or 13. Um, and it's mainly because we have to be careful with cash. Um, we have to be careful with what's going on, knowing what's happening. And it takes kind of the fun and spirit out of, of you know, you're coming off a hot year and you still have the ability to be hot. But now you have to be careful about other people not feeling too hot, right? And yeah. what they're going through. And, you know, um, that takes away some of the charm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's there. You know, I would be lying to you if you said, oh, we didn't say, didn't affect us. Is there, is there any fear on your side of like losing that magic spark of like, we, we develop products quickly, we execute quickly, and now we're kind of, let's take a step back and kind of just be more oh, yeah. fundamentalist? all the time. That's what keeps me up at night um, is right now we're coming off of like, damn, we crushed it. You know, we had $20 million last year, profitably, you know, eight person team, 26 launches, brand of the year. And now you're going into this year and you're like, why does this feel like a drag? 
you know, and why do we have to think about everything? Like we're, we're supposed to be wrapping trucks and working with Tom Shia over at Agile. And it's like, oh, I don't know the right timing for this. I don't know if we want to do this yet. And I know it's going to crush. But like if this was last year, we already already had 20 trucks wrapped <laughs> in the top five metro cities. And so those things are just like, damn, are, is it ever going to change? Like, are we going to always have to be a little bit more cautious um, cause last year too, we were still in the midst of some things going on, but we didn't have to feel as cautious as we do this year because we don't know the peak of this. No. And then how, how do you think about this? Like with, you know, keeping your team in the loop, like, you know, and, and you know, educating them on like, Hey, this is the strategy. This is why it is. And keeping their kind of spirits, uh, up. Is that, is that something that you've been thinking about? Yeah. You know, the, the, the biggest piece to that has been, this is where it's a blessing, you know, but it's a blessing and curse for everything, but it's a blessing to have a small team, right? There's only 10 of us total, uh, one remote, nine, nine in-house. Um, we're basically a family. Um, our group chat is just as live as any of my friends' group chats from high school. Um, and so it's like everyone gets it. Um, you know, some of our employees have even felt like, hey, I... I can't justify driving a carney every day. Gas is $6. Can we do something about this? Right. And, and yeah, of course we're going to do something about it. Um, but the point is, is, is it's very raw and real. Um, and because the dynamic of our company is sitting in one place, we've never even during COVID did work from home. Um, the only time I've worked from home is these last 10 days. Cause I just got a newborn 10 days ago. Yep. Um, thank you. But um, based on that, it's like, yeah, I think we naturally stay intact with everything because that's been the culture of our company. Um, so they know everything from our revenue to our profit and loss too. I, I love that you guys have been in real life this whole time. Yeah, that's like a, a hotly contested debate right now. Like, do you go, <laughs> is work from home the way of the future? Is it, or is it um, more in real life? And I'm a huge proponent of, of in real life kind of work. You know, obviously we have a bunch Me of too. people in person at our distribution center on a daily basis. And we have an office down here in Miami too, but we do have a lot of distributed workers. And I think, especially when you have to kind of buckle down and kind of focus and, and things get a little bit more challenging, I think the work from home model starts to break apart a bit because, you know, people don't have that sense of connection. They can't like dig into the work and work on it together till two in the morning and kind of just get through it. Right. It's, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty because of the unknown of not being around each other. And I think it's, I think it's really challenging. And I think it's, you're going to start seeing that shifting away, especially as 100%. employers kind of get a little bit more leverage now going forward with a looser job market, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's been my biggest on the HR part, you know, challenge has been, I'm, I'm almost fighting against the market where everyone is saying, Hey, you can work from anywhere, go to Spain and work for us, you know, uh, go on vacation and work for us. Uh, and I'm saying I, I need, I can only hire talent that's willing to come into the office five times a week. Um, and that talent pool has become yep. so scarce. You got to do a second shift till three in the morning, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and that talent pool has become so scarce for us. And so yep. even when I want to hire, it's uh, can I even hire? It's kind of an interesting, you know, I think if you have a looser gap and you're trying to meet the needs of the market, it can also lead you to just over hire potentially. Whereas you guys yeah. have a very high bar. It's like, no, we're only looking for people that meet these qualifications. And if we don't hire them, we don't hire them, but we're going to make sure that it's the type of person that fits the culture and, you know, kind of artificially yeah. make sure you're, you're kind of doing it the right way. 
Exactly. Uh, and, and that, that piece is, is, is imperative for us too, because our, again, we're a little unconventional with how we hire too. Um, we're always looking for a CEO for every role. And so it's like, even our customer service person, it's not a customer service director type of thing. It's you're the CEO of customer service. Um, you need to handle everything falls on you. Um, and so, you know, that's when we're hiring like that, it's like, we're looking for the leaders in every space that we want, not so much teams that are going to roll up to a leader, which eventually we'll have to get to, but we're going to try and push that. Yep. Makes sense. All right. I got two, two last questions. Like one, do you think, does it ever cross your mind in this market to just raise a ton of money and, and get aggressive? You know, you talk about, Hey, we should be wrapping 20 cars, but I'm like a little hesitant to do it, but I know it's going to crush. Did you ever think at night while you're sleeping in bed, like, why are we not just bringing in 10, 20, 30 million, whatever, and go after every it while everyone else is single, slowing down? Every single night. And um, probably the first place I'm going to say it is, is I think that's something we're going to be doing more likely than not now, um, because we have so much of a foundation built that if I start building slowly on it, um, it's like a waste of a foundation because um, the foundation will continue to erode, right? As time goes on, as any foundation does. So if I can keep building quicker, which that's really all this economic piece has taken away is the velocity of what I want to do. Um, and so if cash gives me that velocity again, then um, so be it. I'll go away from the fact that, Hey, we're bootstrapped this and that, which is also a vanity statement. Um, <laughs> You know, but at the end of the day, I would love to push it as fast as far as I can. But if I'm going to continue to be kind of like push and pulled right now, I, I definitely think um, that thought process is something that's going to have to become a little bit real more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this could be it could be the opportunity to zig when everyone else is zagging and, and continue to take, you know, share of the market and, and execute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last question. Um what, what would be your number one piece of advice to other teams out there trying to, you know, make it out of the woods? You know, they're, they're uncertain. They don't know what the future holds. Like what's, what would you say to them if you're talking to some founder and kind of coaching them through all this? Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I always start off even some of my mentor pass calls or any like advisor calls that we do. One of the things I always say is I don't want to know your story um, of how you got here. I just want to know where you want to go and why you want to go there. And those two questions, when they answer that, you realize the true passion of what they want to do and why they want to do it. Um, and so it almost makes them themselves remember, oh, this is why I have to get through this. Um, it's not so much allowing the outside factors change those answers. Because um, I think that's what creates uncertainty is when your answers start getting changed by the uncontrollable. Um, and so my advice is, is if you can constantly remind yourself when, and you can do it through something as simple as putting a post-it note on your computer, um, or you can do it where every time you're in the shower and before you hit the bed, you remind yourself why you're doing it and how you're going to do it. Um, I think those two factors are what's going to drive you out of this uncertain time. And then last piece is, know your numbers. Um, I don't care if you're like the most introvert designer in the world and you're running a company or you're the biggest extrovert salesperson. Um, you need to know your numbers. Um, and a time like this, it reminds you more than ever 
then if you don't know your numbers, you will get eaten alive. It's kind of like the classic Shark Tank episodes when they come in and they, they don't know their numbers and Mark uh, yes. <laughs> you know, Mark starts you know tearing them up because they don't know it. But I love it. That's yeah, super awesome advice. Well, this has been a ton of fun. I think people are going to get a, a ton of value out of some of this you know practical kind of what what's going on in businesses right now. And I'm honored to have you as the as the first guest. Uh, love oh, love to hear to from here, another uh, another bootstrapper and uh, you know rooting for you guys. I love love the brand and excited to watch uh, watch the growth so i appreciate that thanks for thanks for considering me to have me on especially as the first guest it's an honor for sure new jersey <laughs> thanks for listening to the out of the woods podcast don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already more episodes are on the way if you want to keep the conversation going suggest questions or nominate guests for future episodes you can reach me on twitter at michael martochi good luck and see you next time <laughs>